listening to the Bible 126 show. Genesis, and uh, we are in the fifth session, fourth day in the fifth session, the fourth day, that's chapter, still chapter 1, verses 14 through 19. I should mention, we're going very, very uh, casually through the first chapter. Don't extrapolate from our present pace that we'll be in the book of Genesis, uh, you know, at the end of the millennium or something. Um, we intend to review the book of Genesis in about 24 total sessions, and we're in the fifth of those. But we have decided, because of the foundational nature of the so-called creation week, the first chapter particularly, that it justifies some careful review, especially since so much of what's in these verses is misunderstood by most readers, if for no other reason than due to a lack of understanding of modern science. Many people have uh, embraced myths and conjectures of a scientific nature that are wrong, that are now known by most thinking uh, investigators uh, uh, to be incorrect, that uh, we're, we spent a little bit of time, some people may think too much time, on some of these issues with particle physics and so forth. So, um, but in any case, uh, we are uh, uh, doing this because we believe that your view of the creation is foundational for your eternity. You don't get saved by understanding the creation properly. However, it's astonishing to me to discover how often God points to his creation as his yardstick for you. Romans 1 is one of the classic examples as others. We've talked about that in the past. But anyway, let's get into this. We're, we're going to look through these days. Now, we had an introduction. The first session was an introduction to the Torah. And uh, the main point that we want to come away with there is you have no need to have any second guessing as to who wrote the Torah in general or the book of Genesis in particular, the five books of Moses, because Jesus told you. All these, this pseudo-scholarship that has confused the issue for some decades is easily disproven for, on scholastic grounds, but set that all aside. Jesus told you who wrote the books of Moses. Many times he quotes from them, attributes them to Moses and so forth. And so you can really dismiss that. And, uh, and I wouldn't get hung up on the age of the earth, but over 50 scientists have published a book explaining why they believe the creation occurred in six days. And we've, of course, touched on that as we've gone through, and we'll touch on it more. And uh, our problem with that issue is not in the book of Genesis, the, the word yom and all that. We, uh, set that aside. Your problem is Exodus 20, verse 11, where the ruler of the universe specifically designates the creation as having taken place in six days. He wrote it in stone with his own finger, right in the middle of the Ten Commandments. So that's the issue. And so uh, uh, we need to get comfortable with that. We talked 
In the second session, we got into this whole business of the gap theory and the origin of Satan, and more specifically, the nature of light, which undergirds so much of the rest of this. In the second day, Monday, uh, we had uh, the whole nature of space, the fabric of space, hyperdimensions, and the, some of the quantum physics that I think many of you are glad is now behind us. Um, and uh, in the uh, previous session, we talked about the origin of life. We went through the photosynthesis and the interdependency of things, molecular chemistry, and we also touched on the anthropic principle. Well, on the fourth day, we'll call it Wednesday, the major topics we're going to touch upon is the nebular hypothesis. Um, we'll, uh, we touched a little bit on extraterrestrial life prospects last time. We'll, touch on, we'll summarize that briefly. But then uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the purpose of the stars. It may surprise you. And we'll talk about... Uh, what God seems to indicate in, in the appointed time. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And if you understand that verse and embrace it, everything else falls into place. And uh, uh, it, it, it's a sweeping, comprehensive statement that embraces it all. It's interesting when you ask somebody, when was the earth created? It appears it was created before day one. Because all the way here... The Earth's around. So that, of course, leads to the gap theory. We've talked some of that stuff. Anyway, verse 2, And the Earth was without form, or some people would translate it, but the Earth became without form and void, and the darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God brooded or moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, and it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were day one. And we've talked about the fact that the word Erev and Boker currently mean evening and morning, but may have meant something more general a long, long time ago and, uh, in terms of these, the, uh, the reduction of entropy and so on. And God said, let the, there be a ferment in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the ferment and divided the waters which were under the ferment from the waters which were above the ferment, and it was so. And God called the ferment heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. Now this is a uh, 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 this was where we took the occasion to understand what the rakia, this, the, what, what the real fabric of space is all about. I won't go through all that again, except to highlight something very provocative about this particular day. We'll call it Monday, and that is that God did not bless that day. God saw that it, all the other days he saw what he did and it was good. But he doesn't on Monday. I'm not suggesting anything wrong with Monday. Don't misunderstand me. But when we get to Tuesday, God said, Let the waters under heaven be gathered under, uh, into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the gathering together of the waters he called the seas. And God saw that it was good. And, and God said, Let the earth bring forth grass and the herb yielding seed and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind whose seed is in itself upon the earth and it was so. The earth brought forth grass the earth yielding seed after his kind and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind and God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the third day. It's interesting that on Tuesday you have two blessings. The one that was missing from Monday apparently and because of this, of course, in the Jewish community, they call Tuesday the day of double blessing, and that's why weddings are usually on Tuesdays. And I'd love to say that's why we have our Bible study on Tuesdays, but we really have it for some other pragmatic reasons. We don't want to compete with the churches, which Wednesday or, or the weekend would imply. So 
In any case, Erev um, and Boker made up the third day. So now we get to tonight's passage. God said, let there be lights in the firmament of heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. That's verse 14. I want you to remember that verse because we're gonna, it's going to be a pivot of some very interesting things. Verse 15, and let them be for lights in the firmament of heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so, and God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. I love that phrase. I have it on my tie. And he made the stars also. And uh, I got this from Answers in Genesis when I was in Brisbane. But uh, it gets a lot of, when I'm in a certain context, I always wear it. And What's that? Oh, he made the stars also. Who? What? You know, they brought it up. They asked about my tie. See? So, anyway, he made the stars also. We're going to talk a little bit about that. What did he make them for? It may surprise you what he made them for. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And the Erev and Bokar made up the fourth day. Okay. Let's talk a little bit, again by review, but to put this into perspective here, an entropy profile of the universe. Entropy, think of it as randomness, disorder. The opposite of entropy is order or information. I have entropy maximized at the bottom of the chart, minimized at the top. Because we're going to, when you create something, you build, you reduce the entropy. You're building by introducing the entropy. And uh, if you look on the right-hand side of the chart, order is at the top, chaos at the bottom. And in the, the word erev originally was the, dis, the ability, um, uh, or I should say the inability, to discern order. It implies chaos. And because as the light disappears and it gets dark, you're less able to discern order, that term later becomes the root from which we get the word for evening. Booker, in the early mornings as the light starts, you begin to be able to discern order as it goes from, as it gets from dark to light. So things become discernible. And Booker then later becomes to mean morning. But it's interesting, it's... Our conjecture that Erev and Boker are steps in reducing the entropy. And uh, I'll prove to you why we think that, why that seems to be confirmed. From Erev and Boker makes day one. And then Erev and Boker makes day two, which we've just covered. And then Erev and Boker makes day uh, three. And uh, this is where we are going to talk about planets and so forth. When you get to day seven... God rests. He is no longer reducing the entropy. And day seven has no evening and morning. So that's a clue, perhaps, what they really mean. Also, if you stop and think of it, and of course, because of the evening and morning usage, that's why Jewish days start at sundown. And because it's at sundown that someone was previously ceremonially defiled, he's clean again, and so forth. Um, but you stop and think about it. If evening and morning were really the brackets of the days, you'd, be only, you'd only have night times. See, it's not from evening to the next evening. See, evening and morning were day two. You mean day two was just between, you know, six and six or something? You see, you, you follow me? There's, there's a logical problem here. And it really unravels when you recognize that the Erev and Boker, as used there, it means something much deeper, much fundamental, just as we pointed out when it speaks of waters. Um, 
There are four states of matter, not three. Solid, gas, solid liquid, and gas. No, also plasma. And there's lots of reasons from the hints of the text. We, it's what we would. It, I'm not suggesting Moses should have had vocabulary for plasma, but I am suggesting that's really what's in view there. The more you know about particle physics, the more, the more comfortable you become with just reading through Genesis 1. But let me talk a little bit about the nebular hypothesis. Um, I think most of us, if we've had any of this material in school, or even if you are a graduate astronomer, you have been exposed to conjectures that the planets came out of the sun, that somehow the sun was there and somehow uh, some forces extracted some material that cooled became planets. There's various forms of that. And uh, there's, uh, the various variations of those conjectures are called the nebular hypothesis, that somehow that our, our solar system, the sun and its planets, came out of the sun. Um, I like to open this by quoting from Lewis Carroll, or Charles Dodson, who wrote under Lewis Carroll, from Alice Through the Looking Glass. How many of you have read Alice in Wonderland? Well, Alice in, you're familiar with Alice in the Looking Glass. It's interesting when she encounters the queen. One can't believe in impossible things, Alice left. Alice left. I dare say you haven't had much practice, said the queen. When I was your age, I always did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. Now, if you're familiar with uh, uh, Charles Dodson's writings, Lewis Carroll's writings, they are children's stories, but his tongue is in his cheek all the way through, and most of the uh, content is very sophisticated paradoxes from mathematics. Uh, you could, one of the most interesting books you can get is an annotated Alice, where, it goes, where it's footnoted, which with Martin Gardner, typically, a uh, math, mathematics editor for Scientific American, published one of these, and it, it, you, there's all kinds of... of anyway, here, of course, he's, he's, he's poking fun at exactly what we're talking about here. See, the nebular hypothesis, let me give you just a couple of quotes. Uh, it's typically attributed to Immanuel Kant in 1755 in his uh, publication, General History of Nature and the Theory of the Heavens. And I'll just give you a brief quote there. Some four billion years ago, the sun had ejected a tail or a filament of material that cooled and collected and thus formed the planets. That's the flavor of the nebular hypothesis. And you'll find many variations of it even in the contemporary literature today. What most people don't know is he didn't, Kant did not um, invent that idea. It appears to have originated 21 years earlier by a guy by the name of Emanuel Swedenborg. He's very popular to a group, the Swedenborgians. Um, he published his publications in Latin in 1734, some 21 years earlier. But in either case, we're talking 18th century material. Now, the Swedenborg, who originated this idea, you want to know a little bit about. He was a mining engineer who had a wide variety of interests, among which he claimed to have psychic powers. And he, he claimed that his theory about nebular, the nebular hypothesis was confirmed in seances by men from Jupiter, Saturn, and some other places even more distant. Now, for some of us, that starts to raise some doubt about his credibility, but um, we'll move on. You see, some 20 years prior to this, when he was but 24 years old, in 1712, he did have an opportunity to visit with Edmund Halley in Cambridge. And he's, of course, well known because he, for his predictions regarding the comet that still bears his name, Halley's Comet. So Swedenborg had a chance to meet, that's a matter of record, had met with, uh, with uh, Halley, and it's, it's, it's 
our conjecture that that's where he got some of these ideas, or at least uh, possibilities. Now, here's where the problem occurs. In uh, 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 Pierre-Simon Laplace, who lived between 1749 and 1827, he lent his endorsement to Kant's theory. Swedenborg gave it to Kant. Kant espoused it. Laplace endorsed it, but he did it without checking the math. And there are mathematical violations involved that he was capable of providing, and he didn't. So this apparently was just an oversight because of Kant's reputation and so forth. Laplace didn't check, you know, didn't look at it critically. And because of Laplace's endorsement and Kant's apparent uh, origination, this became widely respectable. Although people who have a mathematics background quickly have some real problems with this, and I'll show you why. And uh, so through the years, different uh, writers have embellished the nebular hypothesis in ways to try to get around some of these problems, but they really make it worse rather than better. And you say, Chuck, what are, we, what are we getting at? Well, there's some problems with the theory that the planets came out of the sun. It turns out that the sun contains 99.86% of all the mass of the solar system. We, we see these little models of the sun and the planets. We fail to appreciate the size of the sun in contrast to all the planets put together. See, all the planets put together are, what, 15 hundredths of a percent of the mass of the solar system. You know, when I'm talking about the solar, I'm not talking about our whole galaxy. I'm talking about our sun and the planets go around the sun. Okay. Now, even though the sun has 99.86% of the mass, it contains only 1.9% of the angular momentum. Now, what on earth is angular momentum? Momentum is someone's mass times velocity. If you, if you push somebody on a skateboard, it takes some energy to get them going. But once you've got them going, he'll coast until the friction or whatever catches up. When you talk about something spinning, there is also momentum. It's not, it's not linear, it's angular momentum. You see this exemplified with a skater. You've all seen ice skaters or roller skaters that will do a twirl with something extended, their hands or something, and as they bring, bring that weight in closer to them, they spin faster. They actually are, they're, they're not gaining energy, they're really transferring that energy in a different way. The energy that uh, uh, started them in the turn with their hands, say, extended, is going slower. When they bring that weight closer in, in order to conserve the principle of angular momentum, they spin faster. And uh, often in the physics class, some schools will have a, a, a chair that's on a, on a, you know, on a basis on a piece of plywood so you can hold it down, but the, the chair is a spinning chair, and they'll typically be two, give you two bricks and have you put, hold your arms out, sit in the chair, and they move you very slowly. In fact, that's why they don't do it too often because you're tempted to do more. Go very, very slowly and say, okay, put the, put the bricks in your lap. As you bring, put them in the laps, it scares the dickens out of you because you really wrap up pretty fast, even though it can be moving very slowly at first. It's a demonstration of angular momentum. But you've all seen it in skaters and so forth. Well, see, the problem is the sun contains only 1.9% of all the angular momentum. The nine planets contain 98% of the momentum. They're further out, not closer in. That makes it even more... Exaggerated. Do you follow me? Now, by the way, this all was known during the days of Laplace. And so 
that, that, that's one of the reasons he's sort of indicted by his endorsement, because he obviously hadn't thought it through. He did it, and we've all done that, I suppose, given an endorsement without really checking things. But um, there is no plausible explanation that can support a solar origin of the planets. People have tried, and nothing really holds up. And uh, now, um, James Jeans, now we're moving a century ahead later, pointed out that the outer planets are far larger than the inner ones. That alone is bizarre. You'd expect it to be the other way around. Almost, uh, 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 Jupiter is 5,750 times as massive as Mercury and almost 3,000 times as massive as Mars and so forth. And so this is also a difficulty even with the current theories. They don't really face these things. There are some other enigmas. As we examine the planets carefully, we discover something weird. They are in pairs. There are three pairs of rapid spin rates among our planets, each within 3% of each other. And uh, as you look at these, they're, 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 they're not necessarily next to each other, but there's always a pair that have about the same spin rates, within 3%. Earth and Mars have the same spin rates. Jupiter and Saturn have the, roughly the same spin rates. And Neptune and Uranus have the same spin rates. And to someone that's just investigating with an open mind, you can't help but wonder why. That implies that there's some relationship with these, and these things are not necessarily adjacent to each other. Earth and Mars also have virtually identical spin axis tilts. They both have a, about 23 and a half degree tilt, both Earth and Mars. And uh, why? You see, what this leads to is a belief by some uh, cosmologists that um, from the angular momentum issues and from the orbital calculations, it would seem to appear that three pairs of these planets may have been brought here from elsewhere. How might that have happened? Well, because a comet that has a lot of mass in some other system might catch two of the planets in that system and as it passes by here, deposit them. There are mathematics that would suggest that. It would, and if that's true, it, look, it would seem that on three different occasions, three different occasions, there were a pair that did this. Now, these these aren't necessarily provable conjectures, but there isn't any reasonable explanation to explain how they happen unless they just happened. Okay, and that's that's a cop out too. Well, God just did it that way. Okay, maybe He did, or maybe there's much more history here than we have no idea. But there's another question as you talk about Mars and so forth. Mars has craters on it. Have you ever noticed that? By the way, let's just back up. There's another concept here that I think we've talked about, but let's get it out too. The common belief, the common teaching in schools, and I'm talking about colleges, not just high schools, is that things have always things are uniform. They're just the way they've always been. Well, that sounds pretty good until you get a pair of binoculars and look at the moon. Look at the moon, it's beat up. You know, and, and also as we send space probes to all the other planets in the solar system, they all have these craters. You quickly come to the conclusion that our solar system is a rough neighborhood. Okay? But when you look at Mars, here's something that most people don't realize. Mars has 93% of its craters on just one hemisphere. 
and that in fact, and only 7% in the other. It creates the impression that most of those craters happened within a half an hour. What does that imply? The main point, we don't, we, there's no way we can, it's, it's, we, need to, we do not need to indulge in conjectures about that. The point it does tell us, though, is it leads us to a, a family of views called catastrophism. You'll discover that scientists that specialize in cosmology of this kind fall in two categories. The common dictum is that things are uniform, that whatever's happening has always happened that way. There's another group that say just the opposite. We see evidence all over of catastrophic changes. And they, they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily biblically oriented people, although most biblically oriented thinkers are in that category because of Noah's flood, because of all kinds of catastrophes we know about from the scripture. We know that this world hasn't always been the way it is. And so, um, now, about 80% of the uh, craters appear to have occurred within a single half hour. So that's kind of exciting. Strangely enough, we're going to talk a little bit about this when we get to Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8 with Noah's flood because there, there are some scientists that believe the planet Mars had a role in uh, Noah's flood. But we had mentioned Mars. I want to talk a little bit about that. That's the fourth major planet from the sun. It's named after the Roman god of war, right? Mars means war. That's why we speak of martial arts, right, and so forth. That's, we still use those terms. And uh, what's interesting that most early civilizations were terrified of Mars, Many of them worshipped Mars. When you read about Baal in the Old Testament, it can mean heavenly bodies in general, but very often it appears to specifically be talking about the planet Mars. The Baal of the Old Testament, 2 Kings 23.5, well, lots of places. You've all run into that before. The question is why? You and I are arguably more sophisticated in terms of space with since we have our astronauts visit the moon and, you know, we, we've lived in a culture in which it would consider itself very sophisticated with regards to space. But I'll bet you there isn't anyone in this room, or let's say very few people in this room, that could go outside and point out the planet Mars. Now, just recently, in the last few months, it, it's been closer to the Earth than it's been in a long, long time. So it's been in the news a bit. But even with all that, Unless you've done a little reading and got some coaching, you wouldn't know where to look for it, right? And yet the ancient cultures were terrified of Mars. You see, something doesn't compute here, does it? Well, there are some alternative views. The uniform terramans I mentioned, they cling to the presumption that things have remained essentially unchanged over billions of years. We reject that for lots of reasons. The catastrophists say that the universe has been subjected to a series of catastrophic events. And fiat creationists, are, that's us, are included in this view, people who believe that creation came by the word of God and so on. Now, the uniformity of delusions, I mentioned this, you can view any surface in the solar system see the craters. And I don't mean just the moon. Uh, look at all the pictures that come back from Pioneer and all the others. Um, you may not realize that the, the, the planet Earth itself has a constant reign of interplanetary debris, and we accumulate about 100 tons of dust every day, every day. One of the arguments for a young moon is when the astronauts got there, the dust was so shallow 
it couldn't have been falling for as long as people sometimes previously thought. The, the, the thickness of the dust is one way of measuring age in that sense, because you know what the rates are roughly, and you can make some estimates. Did you know that there's over a hundred craters here on the Earth? Most of them are hard to see because the erosion has softened their impact. But if you've been at the Winslow, you know, the crater near the Winslow, Arizona is one of them, and there's, and there's a few others that are still quite visible from an aircraft. Um, in Siberia, at Tunguska, uh, in Central Siberia, on June 30th of 1908, there's a very, very famous event in which 2,000 square kilometers of forest was destroyed. And uh, it, was, uh, it was so remote from civilization that it wasn't really explored until about 17 years later. And it's very famous for that reason. It was, it's, it's been uh, measured and it assumed to be about a 15 megaton equivalent. The bomb on Hiroshima was about a 20 kiloton. It's a, nominally a unit of measuring these things. Our uh, uh, nominal thermonuclear warheads are 4 megaton. This thing was about a 15 megaton equivalent, they figure. And, of course, I made reference to the meteor crater near Winslow, Arizona. It's about a mile across. And there's a huge crater there on the Yucatan Peninsula. It was discovered in 1991. Some, some speculate it had something to do with the reason the dinosaurs uh, disappeared. Um, there's a much better explanation for why the dinosaurs disappeared. It's called Noah's Flood, but let's move on. Uh, it was six mile in diameter. It's about a 100 megaton equivalent, apparently. And uh, what's interesting, statistically, scientists expect that there's something like this about every 300 years. And one in three of these things land on land. See, many of them land in the ocean. That's why you don't see that many craters. So that gives people a certain sense of insecurity. But uh, what's interesting, the ancients worshipped these things. The meteorites, uh, a meteorite is behind the Kaaba in Mecca. That was 2,000 years before Muhammad, by the way. Kaaba is not, it's something that Islam adopted, didn't create it. It's interesting that Cairo, which is the site of the Great Pyramid, is named after Mars. El Cairo is the Arabic name for Mars. So is there a relationship between worshiping Mars and the Great Pyramid? No one knows. There's all kinds of conjectures. And uh, it's interesting, in Athens, we all talk about Mars Hill, right? Heraclius. It's named after Ares, not the constellation Ares, which is spelled differently. Ares was the uh, Greek for Mars. And Mars is, was pictured in the mythology as the source of judgment. So Mars Hill was named after Mars, which suggested to the Athenian mind judgment. And uh, it's, uh, it ha there was an ancient institutional court there, the Oropagus. And uh, Acts 17, of course, uh, uh, is a very key site where Paul chooses to preach there. And by Dionysus was a member of that sect, according to Acts 17. Uh, that, uh, but anyway... But this leads to something else I'll, I'd like to mention because these things impact your perspective of the scripture. One of the problems that Christians have isn't just, gee, did, 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 the, did the Lord create the, the uh, universe in six days? Well, that's what he said he did. I take him at his word. But the other problem some of us run into is the long day of Joshua. The day wasn't long enough for Joshua's battles, and he actually asks for extra time, and the Lord grants it. And a lot of people have trouble with that. The battle of Beth Horon. The kings that he was fighting, Joshua and his, 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 his countrymen, crossed the Jordan, and they were facing seven nations. And uh, they, they, tack, they tackle the capital first at uh, 
uh, Jericho, the capital of the Amorites. But anyway, as things go on here, the kings that they're fighting confederate themselves under a leader who calls himself Adonai Zedek. He was the king of Jerusalem, apparently. And uh, Adonai, the lord of righteousness. Zedek being righteousness. And uh, at this battle at Beth Horon, these kings are defeated by God with stones of fire from heaven. Now, they could be, maybe there's some very special stones, or maybe they were meteorites very skillfully put in the right place. Um, but Joshua asked the Lord to have the sun stand still in order to give them time to complete their victory. And the scripture tells us that the sun and the moon, by the way, both extended uh, uh, an entire day, made it longer. Now, most of us have trouble with that, trying to visualize it, because we presume that that meant the earth had to stop or slow down. And the inertia, there's all kinds of reasons why that is, would seem to be untenable. What we don't realize is all you have to do is change the precession a little bit and you'll accomplish the same thing. But in any case, the kings that are defeated, they hide in a cave until they're finally dealt with. And this whole event, the Battle of Beth Horon, Joshua 10, completes the southern strategy of the conquest of Canaan. And of course, the rest from this point on is just mop-up in the, in, the, in the book of Joshua. But let's get at this key event that bothers many people. The sun stood still. We discover by doing investigation that all ancient calendars, at least 14 cultures I've been able to find, have calendars that were based on 360-day years. And uh, the, the, all these ancient calendars apparently changed after 701 B.C. Um, we also find that Mars was worshipped by these ancient cultures that I've mentioned. And out of all this comes an interesting hypothesis. I'm not going to go into all the details here because it's just it's peripheral to our purpose. But I want you to at least be aware of it. The, uh, the ancient calendars changed. The Romans added four and a quarter days. The uh, uh, other, ca- other cultures did different things. The, the Hebrews did something really weird. They add a month about every seven years. They actually a- add a month seven times on a 19-year cycle. And it's complicated. Um, and you find the ancient rabbinical literature speculates different reasons why Hezekiah, who, who is, did all this, did it that way. What they don't talk about that puzzles us even more is they don't explain why the calendar had to change in the first place. Because the Romans changed their calendar. Everybody changed their calendar. And uh, the theory, there's a, near, there's a hypothesis about a near pass by of Mars. As we have learned about orbital resonance, you all, all, all of you that have some musical background understand what resonance is, or if you're an electrical engineer, what resonance is. Orbits also resonate. Things that are in orbit and near each other pass energy. And... Uh, Earth and Mars, the conjecture is, were originally on resonant orbits. Earth on a 360-day orbit and Mars on a 720-day orbit and, uh, and, and in resonance. However, every 108 years, they would have a near pass-by. Because of the geometry, the pass-by would always occur October 25th or March 15th. Excuse me, uh, March, uh, I forgot, I'll cheat in my, uh, I'll have to look at my diagram, I forgot. But the point is that it would, if it did happen, it would always happen the same time of year when the, because that's where the orbits crossed or came near each other. But if they were both in the right place that they passed near each other, there would be an energy transfer. 
And what's interesting about this model is that it would account for catastrophic events on a number of occasions, in fact, seven of them in history. Apparently, at 71 BC, by then they stabilized to where their orbits are presently. Let me this will be clear um, when I show you the diagram. And uh, so we have the Earth on an elliptical orbit around the sun on the, on the screen there. You have Mars on an uh, a, a elliptical orbit. They would cross. Now, they're resident. Earth 360, Mars 720. Now, on March 20th, or 21st, roughly, there'd be an, if, they, if they passed near each other in the springtime, that would be after they both had passed the sun, so it's just after perihelion. That's the time when you're closest to the sun. Um, and and uh, one would gain and one would lose. If, on the other hand, they're passing in the fall, if they, the other time the orbits are near each other is in the fall, on October 25th, and uh, Mars would be coming from the outside, would pass behind Earth, Earth would lose energy, and Mars would gain it. So each time there was a near pass by, there'd be a transfer. When you get finally to the seventh time this, that we know of that it, this happened, the last time it happens, they stabilize. So the Earth by then had picked up five and a quarter days, and uh, Mars will have lost uh, almost 40 days, well, about uh, what, uh, 13 and uh, about 33 days and, uh, to the, the orbits that they have today. Now, you say, that sounds pretty far-fetched. It's an interesting conjecture and so forth. Uh, but the idea that Mars came that close to the Earth bothers a lot of people. It's surprising to discover that this theory that they've modeled to a great extent, and it's gotten, it's gotten some interesting publication, um, seems to be validated by, of all people, Jonathan Swift. How many of you have ever read Gulliver's Travels? Are you at least familiar with it, right? Okay. Jonathan Swift was an Irish political satirist. And the Gulliver's Travels anthology were essays or, or stories that were intended to poke fun on some political issues of that day. We've lost that today because we're not familiar with this context. But let me back up, give you some technology. The early telescopes, you all know that uh, the Galileo invented the telescope in 1610, and he, with it he discovered the four moons of Jupiter and Saturn's rings, which you can see through a good set of binoculars, actually, if you know how to do it. Um, in 1781, Herschel uh, uh, discovered Uranus. Technology is improving all the way here. 1787, Herschel discovered the two moons of Uranus. In uh, 1789, he discovered two more moons of Uranus. In 1846, Lavier discovered Neptune and one of its moons. In 1877, Ace of Hall, using a brand new telescope at the U.S. Naval Observatory, discovers the two moons of Mars. He made astronomical history because here we are, uh, you know, uh, in 1877, call it you know, almost, well, it's uh, two centuries after the telescope, uh, telescope history here. No one knew that Mars had any moons at all. Why? Because they're only a, the moons are only about eight miles across and they're almost black. They have a reflectivity, an albedo of less than 3%. But he made history there. Now here, that, with that background, he, and he named them, by the way, Deimos and uh, Phobos, fear and panic. <laughs> It seemed appropriate for Mars, the god of war, see? So it's interesting that Deimos has a, a, a period of about 30 hours and 18 minutes. It's almost synchronous to Mars, which is interesting. Phobos is the only thing in the solar system that ro rotates backwards. It rotates eastward, not westward. It's got a, a period of 7 hours and 39 minutes. It's only 8 miles in diameter and so on. So 
Okay, what's that got to do with anything? Well, Jonathan Swift in 1667 through 1745 was his lifetime. He wrote Gulliver's Travels, and not the first voyage of Gulliver we've all heard about, the voyage to the little people, Lilliputians. The third voyage, he goes to this place called Laputa. And while he's in Laputa, the astronomers of Laputa are bragging to Gulliver, his fictional character here, that they know about the two moons of Mars and the astronomers in London don't. And not only that, the discussion in Jonathan Swift's little story details their size, their revolutions, and their orbits within less than 20% error. Not precisely, but disturbingly close. The question is how, and, and, and see the whole point is, Swift published uh, Gulliver's Travels 151 years before they were discovered by the astronomical world. So the question is, how, how on earth did Jonathan Swift pull it out? One conjecture, it was a shrewd guess. I don't think so. Uh, another one is that he somehow knew about the moons of Mars, but he was a friend of Herschel, and so they would have, they would have had some commerce that way. The third possibility, and it's the one that I think is the most likely, is that, Gull uh, that uh, Jonathan Swift drew upon some literature available to him that he probably presumed was just colorful uh, embroidery for his, t for his uh, fiction. And it's not likely that Swift realized that what, the, the, what he was drawing upon, some ancient document that was in his possession, was actually an eyewitness account because that's the only way you could account for this is that somehow somebody had seen the two moons of Mars and uh, it's too far to be seen unless Mars was as close as about 70,000 miles from the planet Earth. So that implies that sometime in history it did pass that close and somebody recorded the two moons and that somehow fell into Swift's thing and he used it as embroidery for his novel. So let's talk about the long day briefly. A third of a million men were at Beth Horon. On October 25th, of 1404 B.C., Mars is on a polar pass at about 70,000 miles from the Earth. It would rise from the horizon about 50 times the size of the moon. It would be pre there would be severe earthquakes and land tides, not water tides, land tides. And uh, this would be preceded and followed by meteors and bolides. Meteors are like iron ore, they're hard chunks. Bolides are explosions. These are... Uh, meteors that are, have, uh, that are chemically reactive. And, uh, but, uh, and most of them, of course, explode before they get close to us. The, uh, a polar shift of about five degrees would cause the day to be lengthened. The meteors would follow two or three hours later at about 30,000 miles an hour. And I'll tell you what's interesting. These meteors are so accurately positioned that they only kill Israel's enemies and doesn't kill Israel. Now, that is in the text. There's no way to explain it except by God's handiwork. So even though there may be some naturalistic issues here, God knew in advance that, Solomon would, that uh, Joshua would need this and uh, apparently arranged it. So now what's interesting, this event is also included in the ancient legends, other ancient legends of folklore. We're indebted to Emanuel Velikowski who discovered that there is a tradition of a long night in China at about this time. So kind of fun. And, of course, this is a, the southern campaign uh, involved the Treaty of the Gibeonites, the Battle of Beth Horon, and so forth. And it's at Beth Horon that, this all, that we have a series of these attacks. The rest of this uh, is, the, is the rest of the campaign in the north was just cleanup after the, this decisive victory at Beth Horon. One last thing I'd love to point out before we leave Joshua 
It's interesting that Joshua is a variant of Yehoshua. It's always provocative to me when I find a book in the Old Testament named after Yeshua. I wonder why. Here's a guy that's the military commander dispossessing the usurpers. He undertakes a seven-year campaign to do so, and he's against seven of an original ten nations. It's interesting to me how the Torah is ignored at Jericho. The Sabbath is ignored and the Levites are involved. Both are prohibited by the, uh, by the Torah. Um, remember, the, they were supposed to rest, on, uh, not do anything on the Sabbath day. They also, uh, Levites were not to go to war, remember? They're the first ones in the procession. And the first thing this, that Joshua does, he sends in two witnesses. Moses, 40 years earlier, had sent in 12 and 10 didn't do many good. So that's what some people like to say. He sent in two witnesses. There may be lots of reasons for that. They certainly weren't spies because there's no intelligence that they brought back that was the basis of his battle plan. All they did is get Rahab saved, a Gentile bride, ultimately. The seven trumpet judgments are echoed there in effect because they're pre- it's, they, they, they march around Jericho once a day for six days. On the seventh day, they march around seven times keeping silence until the seventh of the seventh. And then uh, remember silence for he- in heaven for half an hour in Revelation. Enemies are confederated under a leader in Jerusalem. Adonai Zedek means the Lord of Righteousness. And, all, and he's ultimately defeated with hailstones and fire from heaven, signs in the sun and the moon and so forth. And, uh, so, and of course the kings hide in caves like rocks fall on us and so forth. As you notice this, you can't help have an echo in your ears of what Revelation is talking about. As you go through the book of Revelation, you can, it's interesting to see the parallel structurally with Joshua on the one hand and Revelation on the other. Joshua, of course, being the military commander, dispossessing the land of Canaan from the usurpers, and Yeshua coming as a military commander to dispossess the planet Earth of the usurpers that is running things. And uh, the parallel, I think, is provocative. I mention only so that as you... Dig into either or both books. You'll see that you might explore the possibilities. I said we'd talk a little bit about extraterrestrial communication. It's interesting to me that when scientists look for the signs of, of life, they look for information. And, and uh, Project Osmo was an unsuccessful initial attempt. The, uh, the Communication Extra, Extraterrestrial Intelligence Conference in Bukharatan, Russia, is fascinating proceedings to read because 84 of the top scientists met to discuss this whole possibility of life in space. And what's interesting about those papers, from every field of science, they come to the conclusion that there's no evidence for it. And the probability of ever finding it is, is de minimis. And uh, so there's, they use the Green Bank formula. This is a classic formula by Frank Drake that uh, the number of civilizations in our galaxy would be equal to well, but the rate of star formation, whatever that is, there's speculation on that. What fraction of those would have planets? Which, how many of the planets would have a mean, would have a life-capable te- ecology? How many of those, what fraction of those would actually have life? And what fraction of the, those would have intelligent beings enough to develop into a communication phase? And then uh, what's the mean lifetime of technological civilizations? If you can come up with those estimates, you can come up with a guess as to what, what the likelihood is of finding any civilizations in our galaxy. And as they go through this, they, in effect, are re- lending their expertise to the reality that all of these are disqualifying. And uh, the probability of finding life in this universe, from a scientific point of view, is very, they still like to look, but it, it's, it's very hard to justify. Now, 
Um, you say, well, as hot as a Christian, Chuck, do you believe there's life in outer space somehow? Uh, I'm setting aside angels, that's what I mean, in, in the naturalistic sense. And if there's life out there, you've got one of two problems. It's either sinless or it's sinful. And you can't follow that down very far in either path and find you've got problems. You mean there's sinless life out there? Then why is he bothering with us, huh? Well, if there's sinful life out there, then Christ paid for it on a cross in Judea on planet Earth. That's hard to, it's, you know, in other words, uh, so the net, net of all of this, I don't believe there is. I think we are unique for lots of reasons. But let's talk, we're talking about stars a little bit. Um, I hope you can see this. Uh, this is a picture of a spiral galaxy. Uh, it, it is, light years are a measure of distance, not time. It's the distance that light travels at its present rate uh, in a year. This galaxy is about 2 million light years away, apparently. Here's another one. You see these pictures in magazines and all the time. Here's a galaxy, spiral uh, nebula, that's 18 million light years away. So it's about nine times as far as the previous one I showed you. Here's one, in fact two, but they're, they're about the big one. The main one here is 25 million light years away. These are big distances, especially at the speed of light. Uh, uh, set that aside. There, um, here's one that's 32 million light years away. Here's one that's 65 million light years away. I want, these are all spiral galaxies. There are lots of other nebula, but these are spiral nebula. And here's a, one that's 106 million light years away. Now, I don't know if you've noticed as I was fl flashing through these things, but here they all are at one time. And uh, do you notice anything strange about these galaxies? One's only 2 million light years away, 118, 125, 130. I put them in, in, put them in, in distance order. Okay. Do you notice that their arms are spread out almost the same? Well, what's that got to do with anything? Well, here's the point. The furthest galaxies had to release their light long before the closer galaxies. Obviously. Okay? Because light's not infinite, it's finite, it has a finite speed, whatever it is. The further galaxies did not have as much time to rotate and twist their arms. We should be seeing the further galaxies earlier in their, in their cycle, right? Thus, the closer galaxies should have the most twist, but they don't. The furthest galaxies have just as much twist as the nearer one, which says they're all done at the same time. The speed of light, even if the, if the speed of light was a million times faster in the past, that would account for them being so similar. This is another one of the reasons that the speed of light issue starts to tie things together that would be otherwise be very mysterious. Some other insights. Um, it's interesting that uh, from Job, we talked about Job last time, Job uh, 38, where is, the, where is the way that light dwells? Light's dynamic, darkness is static. That these are all these are a remnant of some of the things we pointed out from Job. We went through Job 38 last time. And this, canst thou bind the influences of Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion? These two constellations are the only two in the heavens that are gravitationally linked. Other constellations look like a grouping, but they're really not because some are close, some are far. But these, Pleiades and the Orion are, in fact, have a gravi gravitational relationship. And so it's, I don't know how Job knew that, because most, most astronomers today don't realize that. 
Now, I want to talk a little bit about the signs in God's plan. We, call, we would call these signs the Zodiac, and uh, the Hebrews would call it the Metzeroth. So let's take a look at this. Psalm 19 is one of several places that deserves some very special attention here. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Now, as a teenager, I used to enjoy this psalm, and I took for granted that what it's talking about is the creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. And indeed it does. Don't misunderstand me. But then it goes on and says some other things. It says, day unto day uttereth speech. Really? You don't mean acoustic speech, certainly. That's empty space. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. What? What words? I almost expect to go out there with a telescope and see if I can find some words spelled out. It's more than just galaxies and nebula and whatever, apparently. Of course, the song goes on. I want to talk about signs in the heavens. And uh, in the Hebrew, what we called the Zodiac, they would call the Matzeroth. Now, let me put your mind at ease. <laughs> We're not getting into astrology. But it's just a matter of history that groups of stars have names. What's interesting is that these names are almost the same in all cultures and have been so for thousands, more than 4,000 years. So they're a convenient way of speaking of, if I can mix a metaphor here, geography. If I tell you that there's a, a, a star in Andromeda or near Andromeda or whatever, astronomers know where, where to look. You follow me? They're, they're geographically. There are 12 classical clusters constellations that are on the ecliptic. If we take the Earth and extend its equator, you've got a, 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 you know, you've got a, uh, a celestial equator. You also have the apparent path of the sun through the sky in a year. That's called the equinoctial collier, or more simply, the, <coughs> pardon me, the, eclip, the ecliptic. There are two places where the ecliptic crosses the celestial equator, we call those the equinoxes. That's when the days and nights are of equal length. When it's furthest north or south, that's the solstice. Winter, solstice, solstice. Now, our days are determined by where the sun is, apparently, in the path. It's actually where the earth is, but you, you know what I'm talking about. Okay. These 12 constellations that are on the ecliptic have names. And uh, the, we would call them the zodiac. By the way, first let's step back a minute. Do you realize how many stars there are in the universe? There are hundreds and hundreds of billions, so much so that there's no number I could give you that would, we could even relate to in terms of galaxies and so forth. But here's the mind-blowing part. The next time you run into that, a planetarium show or a book on astronomy, realize that every one of those stars has a name. You know, when you start thinking about that, that's that's why Psalm 147, verse 4, and in Isaiah 40, 26, God calls them each by name. Wow. Let me tell you, I wish we knew more of the names. We know a few of them. 
and what few we know are absolutely stunning. All the stars have a name. Now, what we call the zodiac, that's from the Greek zodiacus, which comes from a Hebrew root, which comes from Sanskrit, but means zodiac. It means the way. Now, most <coughs> astronomy books assume that it's called the way because that's the way of the sun. It's, it's, the, it's the path of the sun. Having studied this at some length, I'm thoroughly convinced that this term is being used exactly the same way as it is in the book of Acts. It's an allusion to God's plan of redemption. Now it's plan of redemption. One of the earliest zodiacs we, we know of is in the Temple of Dendera in Egypt. It's about 2000 B.C. And uh, it's interesting how when we find other zodiacs, they're all derivative of the same kind of name, same kind of concepts. The Temple of Dendera is in, in Egypt, and uh, there's, there, they ha, there, it too has all these colorful types of uh, appendages to the, the classical signs of the zodiac. Now, most people don't realize you, that these... By the way, the 12 signs of the zodiac are linked to each of the 12 tribes of Israel. I'm going to leave that out for this discussion because we can't possibly even get into all of this, but something you do need to know, we're going to start with Virgo. It starts with Virgo, ends up with Leo. That's the cycle. So how do you know where to start? Because of the Sphinx in Egypt, the head of the woman and the body of the lion. And the word Sphinx means the, 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 you know, the, the binding together. But let's get on with this. Virgo the Virgin, we've all heard about that. What you may not realize, for each of the 12 constellations, there are three closely associated with it. They're not on the ecliptic, but they're nearby. They're called decans. Now, the decans for the virgin are coma the infant. Now, that's weird. Why would a virgin have an infant? Think about it. It means the desired one, incidentally. Centaurus is a dark piercing a victim. Booty is the great shepherd and harvester. Another, the next major constellation is Libra, which means the scales. And it, the, three, uh, the three deacons for it are the cro cross, the victim, and the crown. Hmm, that's kind of interesting. Um, then you have Scorpio, as we often hear taught, which is serpents the serpent, no surprise. Orphacus, which wrestles with the serpent. And when he wrestles with a serpent, the serpent's biting him on one heel, but he's got his foot on its head. Does that ring familiar to you? It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Hercules, the mighty man. Sagittarius has Lyra the eagle holding a lyre, an altar. Draco the dragon, the old serpent. Capricornus has an arrow, an eagle, and a dolphin. And Aquarius has a southern fish, a winged horse, and a swan. Uh, Pisces has the band. Andromeda is the woman in chains. And Cephas, the crowned king. Aries has Cassiopeia. These are all the deacons. The woman enthroned, we all know that that's that bent W that's near the pole star. The sea monster who was bound by a lamb. And uh, Perseus, an armed mighty man. And then the, uh, Taurus has Orion, the glorious prince. Uh, Orion's river and a shepherd. Gemini has the hare. Uh, and two dogs, the major dog, Sirius, the great dog, and uh, Procyon, the minor, the minor one. And uh, Cancer has Ursa minor, Ursa major, the lesser and greater sheepfold, and Argo, the ship. And then the last one is Leo, the, has the fleeing, the fleeing serpent, the cup of wrath, and the bird of doom. Now, these are all embellished with colorful stories that are very similar in most cultures throughout thousands of years, Slightly different here and there. But let me tell you what everybody gets told that's not true. 
Everybody says, well, these, these are pictures, and they've built stories around the pictures because that's the way they look to them up there. Well, that's ridiculous. Go out at night sky and look at Cassiopeia. Cassiopeia looks like a W. It's just opposite the, the poster. And there's no way. It's a W. There's no way it looks like a woman chained to a, sh- a chair holding an ear of corn. I mean, you know, c- come on. But it's consistent. The story's consistent. The, the, the cluster of the stars has nothing to do with the pictures that are associated with them. That's something obvious just by looking at the pictures. What most people don't know, including most astronomers, is where you get the story is by knowing the names of the stars in the order of their brightness. When you know the names of the stars in the order of their brightness, you can put together the story that originally was told about it and the pictures to remind you of the story, not the stars. You with me? It's a mnemonic that you teach kids with. You know, if you're teaching the piano, the spaces are F-A-C-E, right? No, there's no face there, but you use that as a way, you know, F-A-C-E, whatever. It's a mnemonic, right? We all use mnemonics, right? There are many scholars that believe they were the mnemonics that Adam and Enoch taught their kids God's plan of redemption. And let's, let's go see what, let's see what we can find out. The first one is Virgo. Well, that's the virgin, no problem there. Let's turn around a little bit and take a look at it. The primary star, Alpha being the brightest star, is Spica, which is, it means ear of corn. The Hebrew name for this star isn't Spica. That's, that's the one that's handed down through the, the Babylonian Greek traditions. That's the one the astronomers use. The Hebrew name for that is Semek which means branch. But here's the interesting thing. There are 20 different Hebrew words translated branch. Only Tzemek is used exclusively of the Messiah in Jeremiah and Zechariah and uh, twice and in Isaiah and so forth. Now something else you should notice. I don't think I earmarked it here with my notes. You notice what she's holding in her left hand. She's got a branch in one hand and an ear of, and, uh, and, and grain in the other. And uh, the, the, uh, uh, the branch and the grain, the grain of corn, remember John? Uh, to, uh, see, the branch is in her right hand and the ear of corn in her left. From, from this and a lot of deacons that surround her, she's the promised seed of the woman. She's the virgin that will give, chi- give, give birth to the child that will be the redeemer. The branch, of course, speaks of the Messiah and the ear of corn. John, Jesus explains for us in John 12, unless the corn die, it will not it, it bring life and so forth. The next one is Libra, the scales. Well, the Hebrew name for this constellation is Monzanaim, meaning the scales or weighing. And uh, the Arabic name, many of the names, we don't have the Hebrew names, but we do have the, the Arabs have a very active astro- astronomy because they, that's the way they navigate on the desert. And so we, uh, many of these names we have the Arabic, not the Hebrew, for. Al-Zabina, purchase or redemption is what it means. The Coptics call it Lambadia, the, the station of propitiation. The Latin is where we get the Libra for weighing. The brightest star is Zubin al-Ganubi, which means the price that's deficient. And the next brightest star is Zubin al-Kamele, which means the price that covers. See, someone is short and somebody else covers for us. That begin to sound familiar? Revelation 5, Psalm 49, so on. And the third one is Gamma Zuman al Akrab. That's the price of conflict. And it's pointing towards Centaurus and the victim that's slain. 
the deacons. The deacons here are the cross. Ooh, that's interesting. The Hebrew Adam cut off. The uh, lupus or victim, uh, victim slain. And the, the, the Hebrew name here is Asadah, which means to be slain. The Arabic is Asadatan, which means to be slain. Egyptian name is interesting. It's Surah for this. It's a lamb. I think that's kind of interesting. And then the crown is the other deacon that's associated with the Libra, the, the crown that's bestowed. And uh, in the Hebrew name for it is Atara, the royal crown. And, uh, and we could go on and on with this. I won't, I'll, I'll show you one I think is re- really interesting. And this is the one where the, the uh, wrestler is wrestling with a serpent and his one foot is being bitten by the serpent and the other foot is on Scorpio's head. So I think that's kind of fun. And this all climaxes at the end with Leo the lion. And, uh, and the Hebrew name is Aria, the lion. And, of course, this lion is associated with the tribe of Judah. It's a tribal standard. It's interesting that the brightest star there is Regulus in this constellation, which is treading underfoot. Denebola is the judge cometh. Deneb Alasad is the judge shall reign. And uh, the deacons associated with him are the fleeing serpent, the cup of wrath, or cup of fire, Corvus the raven. So these are the constellations that we see. And any place you find some writing about this, unless it's been unusually enlightened, it'll carry with it the baggage of the old mythology from Greek and, and, and Egypt and what have you. But let's take a look at the message. I'm, I, I'm, I'm compressing several hours if I took go through all of these. To give you the message that this has. We have Virgo the Virgin, which represents the seed of the woman. Her, this is the constellation of the three deacons. Seed of the woman, Coma is the desire of nations, the man of double nature and humiliation, and the exalted shepherd and harvester. All are carried by the constellation of Virgo and the three deacons that are associated with it. Libra is the price to be paid and the cross to be endured, the victim that was slain, and the crown that is purchased. And this gets kind of interesting. Scorpio speaks of the conflict, the serpent's coils, the struggle with the enemy, and toiling, the toiling of the vanquisher of evil. Sagittarius speaks of the double-natured one triumphing. He gladdens the heavens, he builds fires of punishment, he casts down the dragon. Capricornus, life out of death, the arrow of God, pierced and failing, springing up again in abundant life. Aquarius, the life waters from on high, drinking in the heavenly food, carrying the good news, bearing aloft the cross over all the earth. you got the Southern Cross in here, too. I won't get into that here. Pisces has the multiplication of the Redeemer's people, upheld and governed by the Lamb, intended bride bound and exposed, the bridegroom exalted. Aries has the Lamb found worthy, the bride released and making ready, Satan bound, and the breaker triumphing. Taurus, the invincible rulers come, the sublime vanquisher, the river of judgment, the all-ruling shepherd. Gemini has the marriage of the lamb, the enemy trodden down, the prince coming in glory, and his princely following. You get to what we call cancer, the possession secured, the less, it speaks of two folds, the lesser fold, the church of the firstborn, and the greater fold, Israel, sevenfolding into an everlasting kingdom. And the final one, of course, is Leo the lion, the king rending, the serpent fleeing, the bowl of wrath upon him, his carcass devoured. Now, the people, the, the classic study in this is by E.W. Bullinger, called uh, the, the um, uh, Gospel in the Stars. Also, J.A. Sice, before the Civil War, wrote a book on this. They're probably the two most reliable ones. I have about four or five of them. Most of them are echoes of much of the same thing. Plus, some, uh, the big trick is to try to get the, some of the missing names of stars identified. And so, on the one hand, 
This is quite conjectural and very controversial. There are many Bible teachers think that this is way out in left field. And uh, on the other hand, it's my, my view that there is enough here that seems for real to respect it. There are many things in here that are still, we're, we're, we're filling in blanks that we don't really have the, the, enough of the names of some of the stars to justify some of the things said. But I want to show it to you because of what the Lord, because of this whole business, that the stars were put there for signs. And God's greatest achievement is not the creation. The creation is emphasized in Genesis and in Romans 1 and in uh, uh, Job uh, 38 and, and so forth, and Isaiah 44 and 45, etc. But you can take a half a dozen passages and that's it. God's greatest achievement, his greatest glory, is not the creation, it's the redemption. You say, how, can I, how, do you, how do you say that, Chuck? You measure it by two things. First of all, how much space in the Bible is devoted to the subject? Well, the creation has a, couple of, has a chapter or two in Genesis, a chapter and two in Job, and a chapter or two in Isaiah. And that's largely it. Um, the redemption, the whole book of Genesis. Certainly the book of Exodus, where they're redeemed out of Egypt. Certainly Leviticus, the Torah is all about it. And you go through the, histor- the, the historical books. Is the whole idea of Israel's ultimate redemption. Certainly the prophets. Certainly the gospels. Certainly the epistles. Revelation is the climax. What's the revelation all about? The climax of God's plan of redemption. There's another way you can measure how important it is. And that is, what did it cost God? What did it cost God to create the universe? Six days. Breathed out of his nostrils, as the scripture put it. What did his redemption cost him? It cost him his son. And there are aspects of that that are permanent forever. No, I think that the heavens declare the glory of God. I think the heavens do declare his glory if we do the homework. And I, tragically, so much of this has been lost through the mythology. It's going to get lost primarily because of what happens in Genesis chapter 11. And we'll, t- we'll touch upon it when we get there. When these ideas, these mnemonics, and the heritage they represent gets corrupted at Babylon. And most of what we know about this in our parlance is the Babylonian translated into the Persian, into the Greek, into the Latin. And uh, garbled, of course, all the way. Let's keep moving here. There's something else I want to talk about these appointed times. This, uh, uh, Rabbi uh, Hirsch says the Jews' catechism is his calendar. And uh, I think most of us know it, it, in Genesis 1.14... It says, God said, let there be lights in the firmament of heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs, ah, and for seasons, and for days, and for years. That's an unfortunate translation. The word is hamoyadim. The word isn't seasons, it's the appointed times. Let them be for signs and the appointed times, and for days and for years. You know, I think most of us recognize the Jews have a heptatic calendar. There's a week of days. We all know about seven days. It also has a week of weeks, the Shavuot thing. We have a week of months. The religious year goes from Nisan to Tishri. And uh, the week of years, the sabbatical year, right? You, you, you plow the ground six years, let it lie, follow the seventh. And then you've got the Jubilee year. Seven weeks of years plus one makes the Jubilee year. All land reverts to its owners. All slaves go free. All debts are forgiven. It's known as a time of restitution of all things. And that's exactly what Peter calls the second coming of Jesus Christ, the time of restitution of all things. 
So these things are uh, God's intended design. The point of times. Now, it's interesting that the if you take the word Hamoyadim and search the computer on the Torah, for where does it appear with any with any uh, interval between letters from from one to ten thousand? It turns out it only appears once, besides the time, and it appears it's centered on the verse we read, and the spacing that it appears on is fifty. Well, it's got, uh, uh, um, excuse me, the spacing is 70. There's 52 Sabbaths. Most of us realize there's 52 Sabbaths a year. There's seven days of Passover, and it's related feast days. There's one day of Shavuot. There's one day of Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets. There's one day for Yom Kippur. There's seven days of Sukkot. We just got through that. And then there's the day after Sukkot, the eighth day of assembly. When you add this up, guess what? There's 70. It's if you look around this verse at a spacing of 70, you find the word hamoyadim in the text. It's one of these really provocative cases of, of, of the appointed times. The statistical expectation of these letters in this order uh, would be expected out of 78,000 letters in Genesis. You expect it to show up maybe five times just statistically by accident. As an ELS, it appears only once in Genesis, and it appears at an interval of 70 centered on Genesis 114. How many think that happened by accident? <laughs> People say there's no secret codes in the Bible. Yes, there is. There's one right here. doesn't mean all these things you hear are right, but it does mean that this one is for real. The odds of this being occurring by unaided chance is more than 70 million to one, or about the chance of you winning the lottery. Okay. The Feast of Israel, there are three in the first month, there's three in, there's three in the seventh month, and there's this weird one in the middle that, is, that has leavened bread, not unleavened bread. Interesting. And the Passover, we're familiar with that. It's on the 10th of Zion. The, the, the lamb was offered between the evenings on the 14th. That, that evening of the 14th was Friday the 13th on the Gentile calendar. That's why Friday the 13th is unlucky. That's when all the Egyptians got killed. Um, not a bone was to be broken and so forth. Jesus is our Passover. The scripture in John 1, 1 Corinthians 5, identifies Jesus as our Passover. So the Passover is predictive of his, his, his uh, death and it's also fulfilled on the day it's observed. Then it's followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread the next day. Leaven is a symbol of sin. This is unleavened bread. There are three matzahs, you may recall, if you've ever celebrated this with the Jewish household. One's broken and hidden. And uh, this is first shows up in Joseph and the, wine, the baker and the wine steward in Genesis. And uh, the, the, the whole, the whole uh, uh, Passover thing has four cups. The bringing out, the delivering, the blessing, the taking out. The third cup is the one he introduced the Lord's Supper with. He hasn't finished. The next one he's going to drink when we're all together. The uh, morrow after the Sabbath after Passover, Leviticus 23. The Feast of First Fruits. It's the morning after Shabbat after Passover. Passover could be any day of the week, depending on what year it was, because it was nailed to the 14th of Nisan. But the morning after the Sabbath after that. So it's always a Sunday morning. It's the Feast of First Fruits. And Jesus Christ, of course, was resurrected on the Feast of First Fruits. And... Uh, the other thing I love to point out is when did the flood of Noah end? Well, it turns out, Genesis 8 foretells us, the ark rested on the seventh month of the 17th day of the month upon the mountains of Ararat. Well, Rosh Hashanah, of course, is in the fall. But um, when, you get to, uh, uh, when you get to Exodus 12, where God institutes the Passover, he says a strange thing to Moses. He says, this month shall be the, unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month. That's the month of Nisan. That's not in the fall, it's in the spring. 
But they have, thus they have two calendars. The old calendar of Genesis, Tishri is the first month, Elul the twelfth. Nisan was the seventh of those months. Under the new calendar instituted at the Passover in Exodus 12, the first month is Nisan, and Tishri is the seventh month because it's a different cycle. The ark came to rest on the 17th day of the seventh month uh, 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 of the year. The question is why does the Holy Spirit want you to know that the ark came to rest on the 17th day of the seventh month? You're reading, if you're reading Genesis 8, you come to verse 4, the ark came to rest on the 17th day of the seventh month. If you're a normal, well-adjusted human being, you go on and keep reading. If you've been to one of my Bible studies, you're no longer a normal, well-adjusted human being. Because you remember that I told you this weird idea that every detail in the Scripture is there deliberately by design. Why did the Holy Spirit want you to know that the ark came to rest on the 17th day of the seventh month? Well, that's under the Genesis calendar. You have to go through all this to be able to interpret this. The seventh month was the month of Nisan. How long was Jesus in the grave? He was crucified on the 14th, three days and three nights. So he's resurrected on the 17th. In other words, God begins our new beginning in Christ on the anniversary of the new beginning of the planet Earth. This represents the birthday of the new Earth. We have a, a whole new beginning. That whole new beginning is on the anniversary in advance of our new beginning in Jesus Christ. Tell me that this isn't all designed. Boy. And Feast of Shavuot, the counting of the Omar. Only, this, that's one of the most interesting uh, feasts to study. It's prophetic of the birth of the church, and it did, the church was born on the Feast of Shavuot. We call it the Feast of Pentecost, born nine days after the Feast of Eleven. Notice there's leavened bread used here. You know, uh, Enoch's an interesting guy. He, he said the oldest prophecy uh, in the Bible, is uttered by, by a prophet, was Enoch. And it's of the second coming of Christ uttered before the flood of Noah. Wow. He was apparently, the Jews believe he was born on Shavuot the day that they celebrated Shavuot. They also believe he was raptured on his birthday. I don't know if he was or not. I can't quite figure out why they believe that, but that is a prevailing tradition among the Jews. I wonder if the church is going to be raptured on, his, on its birthday. I wonder if the Jewish clock will restart on the same feast day that it was stopped. Who knows? We have, then we have the Feast of Trumpet, which is coincident with Rosh Hashanah, but it's actually a different holiday, the Great Blowing. And some people try to tie it to the last trump, but that's uh, uh, confusing because they don't understand the, the background here. But it's followed by Yom Noreen, which is the Days of Affliction, which, of course, is followed by Yom Kippur, Day of National Repentance. The high priest enters the Holy of Holies. There's a scapegoat. All these things point to Jesus Christ. Then we have the final one, the Feast of Tabernacles. And some believe that the transfiguration in Matthew 17 occurred either on or anticipation of the Feast of Tabernacles. That's why, that's why Peter wants to build these booths, see? And uh, that's when they leave their temporary dwellings for their permanent ones in the celebration of Sukkot. One last thing, and we'll tie this off. We talk about these codes and stuff. What about the code for Israel? And they, how, do, how do those letters show up in the Torah? In the first 10,000 letters of Genesis, from minus 100 to plus 100, it appears only twice. But the intervals are interesting, intervals of 7 and 50. Wow. You see, the, the 50 is familiar to any Jewish person. That's the, 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 the Kaddush, the Sabbath observance, Genesis 1 through 31. 
and then the, the other, the, you know, the seven, of course, is the Jubilee year after seven Shemitahs and so forth. So kind of interesting stuff. Well, uh, we've run a little long, I'm afraid, but let's, uh, we, we've, we've talked about the introduction. We went through day one. Uh, we went through the uh, nature of space, hyper things, so forth. We, we've talked about uh, the origin of life itself and vegetation terms and so forth, molecular chemistry and all that. We've gone through some of these topics here, signs in the heavens and what have you. Next time, fifth day, we're going to talk about the fallacy of evolution. It's not an option. Anyone that has anyone that's thinking and is informed should have no problem with this foolishness that we in, insist upon feeding our kids. We'll talk about evidences of design. Some of them are very amusing. Uh, some of them are uh, simple and yet really profound. We'll talk about the whole issue of biodiversity, its implications, and a few other topics. But then that all set the stage because following that, we will talk about animals as we think, mammals and so forth, and man. And we'll talk about all the frauds in the paleontology. But we'll also talk about DNA and the role of information in all of this, and we'll talk about the architecture of man. And, uh, and then we get to Shabbat, the seventh day, and we'll talk about what some, there's some real surprises we feel in this whole seventh day thing, and especially regard, we'll also take on the whole institution of marriage and God's purposes in that. So let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Well, Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your creation as we stand back in awe, as we behold the heavens, and we are just stunned by your awesome power. And yet, Father, we're even more amazed as you begin to realize that behind the fabric of your creation, there's a message for all of us. And, oh, Father, how we aspire to understand more of it. We just pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit, you'd open our hearts and lives to your word and open your word to our lives, that in all these things, Father, we indeed might continue to grow and in, in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you for our lives. We thank you for the creation that you've allowed us to enjoy. But Father, we thank you even more for the extremes that you have gone to that we might live, not just in this brief mortal coil, but throughout eternity and that you've provided a mechanism by which eligibility can be imputed to us that we might abide with you throughout eternity. Father, we know that we are sinners. We know that we merit none of these things. And yet, Father, we're overwhelmed by the realization that you love us so much as to provide us this redemption. We would, Father, that you would just teach us, help us to understand what you've done for us as we commit ourselves without any reservation into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.